If you have a Bible, please turn with me now to the book of Colossians. It's found in the New Testament, and we do have Bibles. If you'll pull one out from under a chair, uh, turn to page 1167, and you'll find the passage that I'm about to read. Colossians chapter 3, it is chapter 3, verse 22, down through chapter 4, verse 1. If you have not been a part of our congregation recently, what we're doing right now is going through a series of, of messages on the book of Colossians called Gospel-Centered Living. We're looking at a number of different parts of our lives that ought to be guided by the gospel, by the good news of Jesus Christ. And so we're not going through the book of Colossians chronologically, verse by verse, but instead we're looking at it topically. We're skipping around, finding different parts of our lives that ought to be lived differently because we're believers in Jesus. And today we come to a very relevant section of this book where we're talking about every single one of us. You know, for the last few weeks we've looked at things that have affected others differently, like uh, we, we talked about marriage. Not all of us are married. We talked about parenting. Not all of us are parents. But today we come to a place where we're going to talk about your nine to five life. And that affects you if you're a student, if you're an employee, uh, an employer, a worker, a supervisor, whatever, a mother, a father, whatever you are in your work life is going to be looked at very clearly by this passage of Scripture. So let me read beginning in verse 22 of Colossians 3. Hear the word of God. Slaves, obey your earthly masters in everything, and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. Whatever you do, work at it with all your heart, as working for the Lord, not for men, since you know that you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. It is the Lord Christ you are serving. Anyone who does wrong will be repaid for his wrong, and there is no favoritism. Masters, provide your slaves with what is right and fair, Because you know that you also have a master in heaven. The word of the Lord. Now the first thing we need to deal with here as we dive in is something that perhaps a few of you are curious about. And that is when we read here about slaves and masters, you might be thinking, wow, I didn't know that Bible condones slavery. And so the question that maybe you are asking yourself right now is, is that true? Does the Bible, in fact, condone slavery? Is it okay to be a a slave? Is it okay to be a master of slaves? Is that what Paul is teaching here? The short answer to that question is an emphatic no. And here's why. Here's why the Bible here in this passage is not condoning slavery. It's because the kind of slavery that Paul is talking about here and the context in which he's writing these words about slavery was very different from what we know as slavery and what we look back on with abhorrence in the history of our own country. In the Roman Empire of Paul's day, slaves and free people were practically indistinguishable. Uh, They made about the same amount of money. Slaves were not usually poor. In fact, a slave could hold a job on top of being a slave if he or she wanted to. They could buy their own freedom after they earned enough money to do so. Some uh, some slaves even owned other slaves. 
which is kind of unusual. So it was it was a form of uh, sort of rising up the the ladder of of society. And few of these people were slaves for life. I mean, the maximum amount of time that most men and women were slaves back in Paul's day in the Roman Empire was something like 10 to 15 years. And so that's quite a different type of vocation from what we would consider as slavery and what we think of when we think of that word. For example, New World slavery or the African slave trade was brutal. And we're talking there about human beings being considered as chattel. In other words, they were owned as property by their master. A slave in the New World could be uh, raped or maimed or killed legally. Uh, That type of slavery was also race-based, and it was based on kidnapping, which the Bible condemns very, very clearly. In fact, you might want to jot down 1 Timothy 1.10, because in that verse, Paul the Apostle puts slave traders in the same category as murderers and adulterers and perverts and liars. So beyond doubt, Paul did not condone, nor did the Bible condone slavery. Instead, what we're talking about here is really submission to authority. Just different forms of that. In fact, for the last few weeks, whether you knew it or not, we've been learning about submission to authority. If you've been here in the last few weeks, you remember a few weeks ago we looked at verses uh, 18 and 19 and discussed wives submitting to husbands. So that's the context of marriage. The week after that, we looked at children submitting to parents. So that's the context of the family. And today, when Paul is talking about slaves submitting to masters in the text that I read, it's very normal for us to take that teaching and apply it to the common work relationships that you and I have. And so here's how I'm dealing with this text this morning. We're going to consider the slave-master relationship that Paul discusses here to be analogous to the relationship between employees and employers, also between students and teachers. So you see, this almost encompasses everybody in our church. So I'm going to take Paul's teaching about these masters and slaves that he's writing about and apply that to your 9 to 5 situation. Almost everybody that I'm talking to here this morning is uh, either a master or a slave. You're either an employee or an employer, a boss, a manager, a supervisor, a teacher, something like that on the one, uh, on the one hand, or on the other, you're an employee, a worker, a laborer, a salesperson, a student, something along that line. Now, one question I hear a lot is when we're talking about uh, employment is how am I supposed to view my job as a Christian? Or if you're a student, how am I supposed to look at that as a Christian? What does that really mean? Can I live it out as a Christian? And what is a Christian view of it anyway? Nancy Piercy wrote a book not too long ago called Total Truth. And in her book, she says that she talked to dozens and dozens and scores of people about their view of their job. And she writes that not one person she polled, not even one, could articulate a distinctively Christian view of work. That's amazing and it's sad because that's one thing we all have in common. We're all engaged in some type of employment, some type of student-teacher, employee-employer relationship. As I talk to people, I'm constantly hearing 
three different, at least three different wrong views of work. For example, I hear some people say that it's a necessary evil. Is that how you feel about your job? It's a necessary evil. It's something I do so I can make money and make a living so that I can pay bills. Another wrong view of work that I hear, on the other hand, the other extreme from that, is that my work is my goal in life. It's what I'm living for. I want to succeed so that I can make a lot of money, so I can retire early. See, those are two incorrect views of life, of work rather. That's not the way Christians ought to look at it. And then here's a third. This one is unique to us Christians. I hear a lot of people say that my job is nothing more than a place to meet people and do evangelism. In other words, that's all it is. There's no value in the work itself. My work is simply a means to an end to meet people so I can lead them to Christ. Now, there's much to commend that, and I'm glad that they're trying to lead people to Christ. But is that a sufficient view of labor? I say no. And so does the Bible. So what is a Christian or a gospel-centered view of work, of labor? Here it is in a nutshell. Here it is. A Christian view of your job is this. Basically, it says that your job is a sacred opportunity to glorify God and benefit people. That's a Christian view of labor. Your job is a sacred opportunity to glorify God and to benefit people. Other people. Let's break that down and let me, let me demonstrate it for you behind four different principles. If you're going to have a gospel-centered view of work and feel that way about your job, here are four things you need to know. Okay, Number one, human beings were made to work. Human beings were made to work. That's principle number one if we're going to have a gospel-centered view of work. And there are three reasons that I say that humans are made to work. Let me go through these with you. First of all, Work was one of the first things that God gave Adam in the Garden of Eden. If you go back in your mind to Genesis chapter 2, do you remember that the Lord took the man, Adam, placed him in the Garden of Eden, why? To work it and to take care of it. That's what God said to Adam. I want you to work it and take care of it, Adam. Notice that God gave Adam a job before he gave him a wife. There's a lesson in there, by the way, for those of you thinking about getting married. The institution of work, of labor, came before the institution of marriage, if you'll go back and check in Genesis chapter 2. Work existed before sin entered the world also. Work is in Genesis 2, sin is in Genesis 3. And sin made work more difficult, but it didn't make work sinful. It didn't erase our calling to work. In fact, later on when God gave the Israelites the Ten Commandments, you remember that? One of the ten is a command to work. We usually call it the Sabbath day commandment. It's the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. But what does God say right after that? Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. So the fourth commandment is as much a commandment to work as it is a commandment to rest. Secondly, why do I say that We were commanded or created, rather, to work because work was part of our creation mandate. Work was part of our creation mandate. A mandate is a commission. And in Genesis chapter 1, verse 28, when God created Adam and Eve, He said this to them. He said, 
Now, I want you to be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. That is, bring it under the lordship of of God. Bring it under the dominion or the reign or rule of God. That's what God gave Adam and Eve, a creation mandate. This means that you and I are charged with the responsibility to bring all things under the lordship of Jesus Christ and under the dominion of our King Jesus. We have a commission from God to do that. Usually when we think of commissions, we think of the Great Commission at the end of the book of Matthew where Jesus says to go out and make disciples of all nations. And that is indeed our Great Commission. But long before God gave us the Great Commission, He gave us the creation mandate. Bring everything under the rule of God. And one of the chief ways we can do that is by working hard with our God-given abilities. The third reason why I say we were created to work is that we were created in God's image. And part of the image of God in us is to be like God, a worker. God is working all the time. And so like God, we are to resemble Him by doing our work. Work for you and me is part of our DNA. It's part of our design. Even on the new earth, after all things have come to an end in this present age, guess what? We're not going to be floating around on clouds playing harps. We're going to be on a new, renewed earth doing work. And the best thing about it all, we'll love it. We'll love every job we are given. Now, there are several implications of this. If you were made to work, what does that imply? Let me give you maybe four different implications, okay? The first implication that I can see is that work itself is a good thing. Don't think of work as bad. It is a good thing. It's not a necessary evil from which you should try to escape. And it's not just a means to some other good, like making money. Work itself is good. Secondly, you will not be happy if you're lazy You'll not be happy if you're unproductive and if you're bored. See, the Bible is clear. Idleness is a bad thing. You are not fully alive. You are not fully human if you have a lot of idle time on your hands. That is not the goal for which you and I were created. It says in 2 Thessalonians 3.10 that if a man doesn't work, let him not eat. See, you're not supposed to be idle. It says in Proverbs 10.4 that lazy hands make a man poor, but diligent hands bring wealth. So the Bible really says, try not to be idle. Now, of course, don't hear me say you don't take vacations. Don't hear me say you don't take rest and breaks and so on. But the Bible commends and commands work because you won't be happy otherwise. The third implication I have is for you parents. Many of you are parents, and it's very, very important as a mom or a dad to teach your children early on the value of hard work. How can you do that? Well, a lot of different ways. Make sure your children have chores. Kids, you love me saying these kind of things, don't you? Make sure your kids have chores to do. Kids, they give you chores not because they hate you, but because they love you and because they want you to see how work is so good. Why not make Saturday's work day around the house? You know, that's one of the things that America does. It turns Saturday into a day that we chiefly value for leisure time. But you remember what the commandment said? 
Six days you shall work. And so Saturday is not just play day. So consider that, parents, as a way of helping your kids understand these things. The fourth implication that I see from this principle about you were made to work is that retirement is unbiblical. And I may be speaking to some people who can't wait to retire. My word to you, the Bible's word to you is don't do it. Don't you dare do it. Even if you're no longer on someone's payroll. See, it's okay not to be on a payroll, but it's not okay to stop working. You should fill your hours by serving your community, by finding a place to serve in the church or your neighborhood or something like that. Volunteer at the hospital, for instance, or some other community organization. Use your talents. My goodness, you're the people with experience to share. Don't pull away from culture and society. Engage it with your age, with your knowledge, and with your talents. Because the goal of life is not to retire. The goal of life is not to have leisure. The goal of life is to glorify and enjoy God forever. And one way to do that is through work. So, the first principle, you were made to work. Let's go on to the second one. How can you have a gospel-centered view of work? Well, here's the second principle. To know that your work matters to God. Your work matters to God. Whatever it is, it is very valuable to the Lord. How can I establish that? Well, as I read through Colossians 3.22 through 4.1, did you happen to notice the many references to God? Let's go back and look. For instance, in chapter 3, verse 22, Paul says, for slaves to obey their earthly masters in everything and do it not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. See, your work matters to God. In verse 23, he goes on to say, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not men. In verse 24, he writes that it is the Lord Christ you are serving. And finally, in chapter 4, verse 1, Paul's talking to masters there, and he says, you know, you also have a master in heaven. So Paul's perspective here is always vertical. He says, you've got a job, you've got a job to do. It's very, very important to God. He is involved in it in every way. You may think you're working for Lockheed Martin. You're not. You're working for God. You may think you're working for the Orange County Public Schools or for Siemens, or for UCF, or for the Orlando Health uh, Organization, or for McDonald's. You're not. You're working for God. As verse 24 says, it is the Lord Christ you are serving. What a different perspective that would give you tomorrow morning as you go to your job or go to school. It is the Lord Christ that I am serving. Never forget that. Now, at this point, I'm... I'm anticipating that there are a few people out there who are saying, sure, go on, go on, talk about it. But the fact is, I'm in the secular world. Mike, it's easy for you to say because you're in the sacred world. You're doing really important stuff because you're doing spiritual work. My job, you're saying, my job is just a job. I'm just a secretary. I'm just an engineer. I'm just a teacher just a homemaker, just a doctor. 
if I were doing something spiritual, (laughs) then I would feel good about my work. Then I would know that I'm really doing something important. But I'm not. I'm not a missionary. I'm not a preacher. I'm not a pastor or a Bible teacher or something like that. I don't work for Campus Crusade. I don't work for Wycliffe. I've heard people say this here at our church. I'm not doing anything important. I'm doing, I've heard this. I'm doing nothing of eternal value. My friend, let me disabuse you of that idea. Never, ever say that again if you're a follower of Christ. You know where that thinking comes from? Not from the Bible, but from the monastery. It's a part of monasticism. If you've never heard that word before, it means that way back, just after the death of Christ, there arose a movement of people who were ascetics. They thought that to be spiritual, they needed to separate themselves from the everyday world and live in a community that we would call a monastery. That's what monasticism says, is that spiritual work is over here, secular work is over there, And to be really important and valuable to God, I've got to be in the spiritual world. John Cashin. John Cashin was a man. He was one of the desert fathers. He was sometimes called John the Ascetic. And he was one of the first monks. He wrote this. It's on the screen. He says, Men engaged in the ordinary and virtuous pursuits of life sometimes see Jesus. Now that's most of you. You're engaged, most of you, in the ordinary parts of life. You sometimes see Jesus. But he goes on to say, but they cannot see him with the distinctness possible to those who climb up with him upon the mount of saintliness. That's me. (laughs) Oh boy. See, John Cashin is drawing a huge distinction between the ordinary parts of life and the saintly parts of life. And he says, if you really want to be important to God, you need to be involved up there on the mountaintop, not down there in the valley where ordinary people live. See, in medieval times, which followed John Cashin and others, the thinking was that to be perfect, you had to leave ordinary life. And work, what we're talking about today, was considered to be debasing a demeaning activity. It was thought to be a distraction from what you really ought to be doing if you really want to know the Lord. You you need to be a priest or a pastor or a cleric or a monk or a nun or something along that line. And that is where we get this secular, sacred distinction. But we're Presbyterians. We don't believe that. We come out of the Reformed tradition. We trace our mindset back to a a, a young uh, German guy by the name of Martin Luther, who had this dramatic insight that's so clear in the Bible, he challenged that whole idea that uh, of secular versus sacred. He took that word calling that you've heard. It used to be applied only to priests and clerics, and Luther applied it to jobs. And he said every job, every, every legitimate job is a calling, a vocation. He argued for the priesthood of all believers All of us are priests in the eyes of God. And he said there were no higher and lower callings. There is no mountaintop. We're all here on the earth together. Luther wrote this. He said the whole world could be filled with the service of God. Not just the churches, but the home, the kitchen, the cellar, the workshop, and the fields. 
What a refreshing insight that was. John Calvin followed in his train along that line and said that all legitimate work is a vocation from God. Calvin said this. He said, even the woman in the kitchen with her hands in the pastry serves God. And isn't that exactly what our text says this morning? Verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord, not men. See, God doesn't just care about souls, people. He cares about all of life. He cares about culture. Abraham Kuyper was a Dutch politician and theologian. And he said this. He said, there's not a square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Christ, who is sovereign over all, does not cry, mine. When you step into your office tomorrow morning, think of that. Jesus Christ is saying, mine. This is my place. When you go to UCF tomorrow, when you go to Timber Creek, when you go to Waterford Elementary School, wherever you go to school, when you walk into that building, Jesus Christ is saying, mine, I own it. You are serving Him when you go through those doors. So whether you wear a white collar or a blue one, whether you work in an office or a warehouse or a store or an assembly line, whether you're a student or a teacher, a thinker or a doer, a home builder or a homemaker, your job matters to God. So we're building this gospel center view of life. We've said that you were created of work, rather. We've said that you were created to work. Your work matters to God. Here's the third principle. In order to have this gospel-centered view of work, you need to work with excellence. God calls you and me to work with excellence, whatever we do. So what does it look like to work with excellence? Let me show you five things that it looks like. First of all, it looks like this. Pay attention to detail. When you're on your job, when you're in school, pay attention to detail. Verse 22 says, slaves, obey your earthly masters in most things. Is that what it says? (laughs) Obey your earthly masters when you feel like it. No, It says, obey your earthly masters in everything. Substitute the word, obey your teachers in everything. Substitute the word, obey your supervisors in everything. Dot your I's, cross your T's. Don't take shortcuts. Don't just get by. Don't do just the jobs you like. Do the ones you don't like. That's what it means. Second thing it looks like to work with excellence, don't be a sycophant. Who knows what that word means? <laughs> What's it mean? Yes. A suck up. That's right. <laughs> Don't be a suck up. Don't kiss up to your boss. Uh, that's what it means. Don't be a brown noser. I didn't want to put suck up on the screen. I, there, was just, there was just something about it I couldn't do. So I thought, I'll teach him a new word. Don't be a sycophant. Look at verse 22. He says, Obey your earthly masters in everything and do it not only, notice this, not only when their eye is on you and to win their favor, but with sincerity of heart and reverence for the Lord. In other words, do what you should be doing even if no one is watching. Even if you don't get credit for it. Do the right thing. Don't be my church staff. I hope you're listening because every time I come into the office, suddenly they put away their playing cards. They stop watching TV. They get serious about work. Not really. I'm just kidding. 
I thought I'd just give him a little poke. Don't be a suck up. Thirdly, what does it look like to work with excellence? Work hard. That's what it means. Work hard. It says in verse 23, whatever you do, work at it with all your heart. I read a study that was done a few years ago that found that Americans spend 32% of their work day goofing off. Wow, that's a lot. Now let me address something that is of, I think, interest to Christians. A lot of Christians think that to glorify God on their jobs, they need to talk about Jesus a lot. And listen, I'm, it probably wasn't clear in the early service. It is not that I'm saying you never talk about Christ. I mean, when God opens a door, you walk through it, you share. And, and I'm certainly saying use your lunch hour to build relationships with people and to talk about your faith. Don't be bashful. But when you're on the job, to talk about anything that is not related to the work that you have to do is stealing time from your employer. And no matter how much you talk about Jesus Christ, it is not going to undo the damage you've done by being a bad employee or a bad worker. I love what St. Francis of Assisi said. He said, preach the gospel at all times. And when necessary, use words. See, you can preach the gospel by being a good worker. You witness by the way you work. You know, if you're a sloppy worker, if you turn in shoddy work, if you're late and unreliable, you are damaging the cause of Christ. You're really stealing from your employer, stealing their time. On the other hand, if you work hard, if you do your work well, if you do more than is asked of you, if you are dependable and cheerful, if you're positive and cooperative, then don't be surprised if one day someone you work with comes up to you and says, what in the world makes you this way? And then you can share why God has changed you into that type person. The fourth thing it looks like to work with excellence is to respect those you work with who are over you, and respect those who are under you too. Let's talk to you who are workers or students who have people over you. If you're an employee, I want you to notice the word master in verse 22. It's the Greek word kurios. It means Lord. (laughs) It's the same word used to apply to Jesus Christ. Paul says, obey your earthly Lord. Look at your boss, your supervisor, your teacher as a master and obey him or her. Don't go around cutting down your company or your supervisor. And then if you're an employer, if you're a boss, if you're a supervisor or a manager, a teacher, something like that, Paul wrote verse 1 of chapter 4 for you. Look at that. Masters, he says, provide your slaves what is right and fair because you know you also have a master in heaven. In other words, value your people more than you value your bottom line. That's what you must do. Reject a utilitarian view of people that would use people for your own profit. Don't use your authority to abuse your workers. Pay them a fair wage. Look at them as fellow image bearers. Teachers, are you looking at your children that way in your class? Fellow image bearers. I had a supervisor in the work I used to do as a graphic artist. And at the end of every day, I don't think he missed a one. We would be walking out after we've clocked out and he would say, thank you. Thank you. That made a huge impact on me to just appreciate your workers. 
And the fifth and final thing it looks like to work with excellence, work for a reward greater than money. Work for a reward greater than money. That's what Paul says when he writes in verse 23, to whatever you do, work at it with all your heart as working for the Lord and not men, since you know you will receive an inheritance from the Lord as a reward. You may feel like you're not getting paid enough, and that may be true. Perhaps you do need to ask for a raise. But even if you get a raise, there's a greater reward awaiting you. You're on God's payroll. You were created to work. Your work matters to God. Work with excellence. We're building a gospel-centered view of work, and there's one piece missing. Here's the fourth and last piece of what it means to have a gospel-centered view of work. You really need something more than work. Your job will never fully satisfy you. So you must have this piece in place too if you're going to look at work in a gospel-centered way. Your work will never really satisfy you. Why is that? It's because your work is under the curse. Just like Paul told us earlier that marriage is under a curse and the family is under a curse, making it harder to be a good parent, so is work underneath the curse. Look at the curse again. We've, we've looked at this before, but in Genesis 3, God speaks to Adam and Eve, and say, or speaking to Adam directly, says, Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. That is why the office copier is always breaking down. That is why corporate is always changing the rules on you. That is why you get those memos that totally rock your world. It's because the ground is cursed. It will produce thorns and thistles for you and you will eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your brow you will eat your food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. We are broken. It's a fallen world. That's why That's why that job is the way it is. I'm not saying you don't need to transfer or look elsewhere for a better job. That's not my point. But sometimes when people tell me they don't like their job, I want to say back, so what else is new? Get over it. Every part of life is broken. Don't be surprised if you don't like your job. Go ahead. Blame Adam. It's his fault. Because work alone can't give you what you need. Your job will never fill that God-shaped vacuum in your heart. Only Jesus can do that. Only Jesus can do that. And this explains why people become workaholics. Because they take a good thing, namely work, and try to make it out to be an ultimate thing. And only Jesus ultimately can fulfill the needs of the heart. They think, some people, that a better job will do it, or a transfer, or more money, or success, or a promotion, or a bigger profit margin. But only Jesus can give you significance. See, Jesus came into this world not just to take people to heaven, He came into this world to restore the broken things. To put things back the way they were supposed to be. Rather than let things go to ruin, God sent His Son Jesus to come and be the bringer of restoration. To restore marriages. To restore families. To restore labor. And we as His people get to enjoy His restoring work. 
See, when you say yes to Jesus Christ, your work takes on meaning and importance. But until you say yes to Christ and let Him be your Savior, your Master, your leader in life, work is going to be unfulfilling, as will all the rest of life. So if you've never said yes to Jesus, do it today. Go home today and say something like this to Jesus. Say, I'm a sinner. I need to be set right again, Lord. I give you my job. I give you my hands. I give you my family. I give you my marriage. Restore the brokenness. And He will. Let's pray. Lord God, thank You for our jobs, our employment. Thank You for our schools. And Lord, we pray that when we go off to work and school tomorrow morning, that we will take this mindset with us, that you own those places so that we are working not for men and women, but for our master, Jesus. And we pray today, Lord, that if there's anyone here who has never really found that ultimate satisfaction in Christ, that they will understand that that's why they don't like their job. That's why they don't like their house. They don't, that's why they don't like many things. You're the one who is the ultimate need meter. Come in and meet those deepest needs of our hearts. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.